This is the Serial at Midnight Podcast. Howdy guys, welcome to the Serial and Midnight Podcast. My name is Heath Holland and I am so excited about this episode because, you know, a few episodes back I got to sit down with Mark Evanier who was the, uh, he developed the 1983 Dungeons and Dragons animated series for television. So I got to geek out about 40 years of Dungeons and Dragons in animation form. Now, a few episodes later, I'm talking to Michael Whitwer who is arguably, and the person that would argue this is him. Because I threw this at him in the interview. I said, you know more about Dungeons and Dragons than just about anybody walking the face of the earth. And he said, no, that's very nice of you. No, listen, I've read the man's work. I, he, he's the biographer of Gary Gygax, the man that invented Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, we're going to find out about how he came to, bio, to, to write the biography for Gary Gygax. Then, a few years ago, I reviewed uh, a book here called Art and Arcana, which is a visual history of Dungeons and Dragons. I love the book. It's filled with hundreds of images. You know, Dungeons and Dragons has some of the most iconic fantasy art ever created. And uh, it's a visual history of the game, of all of those editions, of all the, the beautiful art, but it's also rich with text. And it was written by Michael Whitwer, uh, Kyle Newman, the director of Fanboys. We all know the movie about, you know, Fanboys about <laughs> the Phantom Menace. Uh, great, great, great kind of coming of age story. Uh, by John Peterson, the keeper of the Chronicle. John Peterson's a, a legend in, in, a, in our community. And by Sam Whitwer, Michael's brother Sam, who, again, Star Wars fans know from The Force Unleashed 1 and 2, uh, the voice of Darth Maul, the voice of the Emperor and the Lego projects, really synonymous with Star Wars for the last 10 years, if not more than that, because he's such a huge fan. Now there is a new, a new entry, a new visual dictionary, a new, a new visual guide to, uh, it's called Lore and Legends. This is about the fifth edition. It's a visual celebration of the fifth edition of the world's greatest role-playing game. Now, if you're not super into Dungeons and Dragons, you're like, well, what does that mean? What's the fifth edition? Why should I care? Well, the fifth edition is really what brought Dungeons and Dragons back. It was a game that a lot of people had played. Oh, I used to play that. I played that in, when I was in high school. I played that in the 80s. The fifth edition made it cool again to play Dungeons and Dragons and really brought the game from kind of obscurity to the biggest success it had ever had, including the original era of Dungeons and Dragons. So this is the visual history of that with, again, hundreds and hundreds of images and thousands and thousands of, of words, uh, really the history of the fifth edition. And I love it. If you don't know about the fifth edition, you will after you check out this book. Even if you're a, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you got to have this book. You know, if you're a fantasy, write, a fantasy novel fan, you got to have this book. It's incredible. And so we're talking about these books. We're talking about Dungeons and Dragons. We're talking about the Satanic Panic. We're talking about Gary Gygax. We're talking about just the art of creation right now. It's a fascinating conversation. I should also mention that Michael has written his first uh, novel. This is Vivian Van Tassel and the Secret of Midnight Lake. It's a, uh, a middle grade reader book that is heavily inspired by Dungeons and Dragons. D&D &D in this book is B&B. Is &B. Uh, battlement beasts and battlements and so I mean everything that he loves about Dungeons and Dragons he's put into this new book we're gonna hear all about it guys this is the minute he logged on to this zoom call I was like oh this is gonna be great this is gonna be everything I hoped it would be and more so without further ado Michael Whitworth um, how did you okay first of all you said that the books have done well so when we talk about art and arcana did we say arcana or arcana or arcana how would you say I, I, I say arcana, but I arcana, don't think, okay. yeah, I, I don't know that there's any right ar, arcana. I, I don't know if there's any right way to say it. I say art and arcana. Yeah. Sounds it's, cooler. It's, sounds. 
<laughs> it sounds kind of mythical, kind of mm-hmm. like yeah, mystical, mythical. It's got that that lore that like you know, there's like chimes in the background when you say it. Um, right. It's right. such a beautiful book, you know, and I'm so glad that that came together the way that it did. And I'm glad that it was received well, opening the door for what we're talking about here. But I do wanted to start with I wanted to start with Art and Arcana because it's. Yeah, I did do that video about it. I you, you mentioned the video. I don't even remember what I said. Like, I haven't gone back and watched that. I feel like that was a very different version of me and the channel at that point. But, I mean, I, I loved it. You know, I picked it up, and I was like, this thing is – and I'm coming to – I told you this is not going to be the typical interview that you've done. I told you I came to it from – like, I wasn't allowed to do anything Dungeons & Dragons when I was a kid. So all this stuff for me is like it's that forbidden fruit that I just got to get my hands on. And so, like <laughs> – pouring over the tomes you know like turning the leaves of the pages and i'm just like (laughs) filling me with power forbidden forbidden fruit it is though it was and it is for to so many people right yeah but it's a wonderful book and it's i i I, i'm curious what kind of when you started that project well it's not so we should say it's you it's your brother sam it's kyle newman Mm -hmm. uh hold on what are the other credits here i got and john peterson john peterson when you when you guys started that Okay, hold on. First of all, what's the division of labor there? How are you guys dividing this stuff up? Yeah, so the way we took on that project um, is we actually cut that that book is roughly divided. It covers Art and Arcana covers the the kind of the first forty years of D anD D history. Mm-hmm. We go a little bit pre uh, prior to that. So we basically divided that up into four chunks. Uh, we actually kind of wrote uh, our four sections. We went away. We wrote our four sections and came back together. Um, and I should talk a little bit about the methodology. So. The way we approach that book is we, we spent a lot of time trying to figure out, well, how are we going to do this visual history? Because it all started actually, um, uh, I guess it, it demands the story a little bit. Um, at, when when that book came about, um, I knew Kyle Newman online because Sam and Kyle were friends out in Hollywood, right? They're mm-hmm. in the same circles. Yeah. Sam is an actor. Kyle's a director, right? And, and specifically- Star Wars guys, right? They're big Star Wars guys, exactly. Yeah. So they were they were pals. And so I, Kyle and I became like Facebook friends or something or other, but I, I didn't really know him. But one day he called me after I wrote my first book, which was called Empire of Imagination, which was a, um, a biography about Gary Gygax, the creator, the co-creator of D&D. Uh, I've got a copy of that here. There's that guy right there. Actually signed by Jeff Easley right there on the front, which is kind of nice. cool. Um, he did my cover because, well, because he had to. Um and so he had read Empire of Imagination, loved it. And he said, and he said, oh, you know, like you're in the space now, you're, you, you write these things. Where's the art book? I remember is what he said. He said, where's the art book? I'm like, what do you mean, where's the art book? I, I was like, I, like, I'm like, I've got D&D art books from the 80s. They, they did make them, right? There was like a Worlds of TSR and there was, there was a Dragonlance art book. There was a few of them. Um, but like, it was, it was a good question. And what he was getting at, of course, was not like if there's ever been an art book. What he was looking at is like, he's like, you know, you go to a bookstore, like, you see like the art of Zelda and the art of this. They're like, where's, where's the D and D art book, especially this is like 2016, right? 2017 yeah. where D and D is actually like starting to like, it's on the rise very much by now. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I was like, that's a good question. I remember going to the bookstore. I remember actually looking at all the books that were there and there was like an art of Assassin's Creed and stuff like that. I'm like, where, where is the D and D art? Book? This is a good question actually. So yeah. it just so happened doing that first book, I had gotten, um, pretty close to, well, a couple of people, importantly, John Peterson for one. Now, John, John was someone who helped me a lot with my research on my first book because he had previously written like the definitive tome of like pre D and D history. Uh, it's a book called playing at the world. Now, and so John, redefined everything we understood about about D history by looking at every esoteric fanzine that was ever made and he's just an extraordinary researcher 
And so I got to, I got tight with John during that project, and he really helped guide me in, uh, on my first book. So once I had done that, I had also gotten close with a number of people at Wizards of the Coast because there's there, I, I had some fans over there that really liked my book. So I'm like, it, it kind of worked out. So I had um, a, a platform at that point to actually go approach a couple of my friends over there. At the time, I knew people like Chris Perkins and some others. And, um, and said, Hey, like, so, you know, I'm, my buddy, Kyle, now my buddy, Kyle <laughs> called and said, where's the art book? I thought it was a pretty good idea. What do you think? And uh, they actually connected me to Liz Shu, who was the director of publishing at Wizards at the time still is actually, she's been there for 20 years. And, um, and it just so happened when we called, when I called Liz Shu, she was like, you know, it's funny you're calling right now because I just like got a call with Penguin Random House who was interested in doing some stuff with us like this. And I was like, well, that's, that's convenient. So um, I, I guess you could say I kind of assembled the A-team at that point between my brother who got me into the game originally, best dungeon master I've ever played with, uh, Kyle, who's, who had the idea and was nuts about the game, and then John, who was really like the, the, you know, the incomparable researcher. And then I, you know, I knew my way around it at this point because I had been researching it heavily for five years at that point, having just written a book mm-hmm. about it. So that was the team we put together. We got with Penguin Random House. It was a, it was a publisher called Ten Speed Press, also the the, ten, the publisher of Lore and Legends and everything else. And um, and so we we dove into that project. And when we approached it, one thing that we landed on pretty early on was that an art book is is not only inessential, but it's like so. What do you do with an art book? You just pick a bunch of random art that you like. That's you know, and then like oh look how cool this is. We realized pretty early in the process that that was not gonna that was not gonna hold up. And so, what we did is we landed on on a process um, where what we would do is we figured out what the story of the brand was, and we decided we were gonna make a visual history. And so, the story of the brand is just kind of like where does the brand go, and then what are the visuals that support that? And so, so, so Heath, as you pointed out, and and even in your original um, video of it, if, if memory serves. You know, you kind of point out we cover a lot of different ground. It isn't just art; it's advertising, it's ephemera, it's photographs, it's period photographs. And so, all of a sudden, what you've got is you're able to tell this story, like kind of left to right, but you tell it through images. Now, there's there's also eighty thousand words that tell you the story, but the first thing we did was the words because what we realized is that we could divide and conquer these four decades, and, and I don't remember exactly who took what, but. If you divide and conquer these four decades and we figured out what was the most important points of each decade, not only product, but like what's happening, like the satanic panic, for example, mm-hmm. then you can figure out what you need to graft onto that story for imagery. That was how we were going to curate the images. So th- that was pretty much how we approached the project. And so the first part was really the writing. We needed to figure out what the story was before we figured out what the art was. So it was very much not an art book, even though that's really originally how it was sold and kind of all purchased through Penguin it became a visual history really quickly. And that, that was what I think made the difference because an art book, I think an art book would have been well-received to be honest, just based on the access we were able to get from this stuff. I I've often defined art and arcana as it was more of an archeology span project than it was like a, a, an, a, a, you know, like an author project because we were spending a half of our time working with private collectors, like unearthing art that had never been photographed uh, in its native form. Like all of this stuff, you know, I'll give you an example. And I mean, this was probably the most gratifying part of the project. Like, so independent of what I said about, you know, how the story gets told through images, being able to show the original wraparound cover of the player's handbook or the monster manual without the text bubble on the back and without the trade dress, nobody had ever seen those. They had never been photographed 
as they were and printed that way. So for us, one of our original goals was we want to find all of the AD&D wraparounds and we want to be able to publish it. That was one of our original objectives. And we knew where like three of them were when we started. And that was a good start. Um, I don't think we knew where Fiend Folio, uh, there was a couple that, 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 that we didn't quite know. Um, so there were some things like that that really just stand on the art itself. It's good enough just to put a full spread. But ultimately, the real goal was we thought we would succeed if we could tell the story of the brand. And I'm going to use John's favorite term when describing these books is the book needed to work with the sound off. So you could read it and get the whole story, but you could also just flip through it and actually see what was happening. And And that was cool because... As, as you may recall, the earliest parts of that book, it's so homebrew and so crunchy. And it's so fun to see how this 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 little tiny hobby in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, where, where Gary was literally hiring 14-year-old local kids to do his art and 17-year-old Greg Bell to do his art, uh, paying them, you know, like a dollar a panel. And how that grew to the, you know, to the era that we know about with Trampier and Sutherland and the AD&D era. And then like the height of really fantasy art of the 80s with like Larry Elmore and Jeff Easley and Keith Parkinson and Clyde Caldwell. Like it was so gratifying to be able to show that. And and I don't think we could have accomplished that if we hadn't thought about constructing the book that way. Mm -hmm. Did you have any idea how much, I mean, it feels like it's labor intensive when you talk about the research that goes oh. into it. It seems like it. I mean, I know you're like you have a lot of academia in your background. I'm, we're looking at your degrees over your shoulder. This is kind of what you want to do, right? Like you're you're deeply invested in like the like like you know this means something. You know, you're, like, you're looking totally. at the documents, the pages. But like, did you have any idea what you were what you were about to embark on? No, no, not at all. Um, we uh, I remember at the time uh, it was a project that one reason we were so excited is that we would have like done the book for free. Maybe not really, but we were, we just wanted to do this book. We wanted to see this, this, this book be born. It was, it was just, once we got excited about it as a team, we were like, we've got to do this and let's just see if we can get this publisher to like make this happen. And it, they were on some level an easy sell because they wanted to do it just as much as we did. Uh, the publisher over there, uh, Aaron at 10 speed just was dying to do this project. So it was, it was just the right people at the right time coming together and being totally aligned about what needed to happen. Um, the, but I mean, again, as, as I said, the scope changed of it pretty dramatically and the work that made the work really extraordinary. So consider there's a lot of versions of this book we, we could have done kind of relying on stuff that was out there. The key was getting the stuff that wasn't out there. And so I mean it when I say we were like traveling the world, um, like finding where these pieces were um, a, a lot of times through the private uh, collector community and going, and we would go and we would like photograph these ourselves. Like we would, we would literally do this. Um, so it was just like a, a super exciting project, but it was expensive. Dude. It was a really expensive project to do. Um, but I will tell you when we were doing it, we, we like made a pact. We were going to spare no expense. If, if we could put a thing in the book that would make it 1% better, but it was going to cost X amount of dollars. We were going to spend that money to do it. Um, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. There was a lot of licensing as well. There was, there was probably, not probably, actually, I, I know for a fact, there was about a hundred things in that book that required some level of permission and licensing. So consider when you're doing, um, when you're doing a branded book like this, that's, that's under, in this case, it was an officially licensed Wizards of the Coast book, right? So you'd think, well, oh, so everything's kind of covered, right? They can just kind of hand wave and everything's done. Well, not when you want to use a bunch of panels. We were just talking about old Marvel comics, right? When you want to use a bunch of panels from an old um, 
uh, Nick Fury comic to show you how they used to do swipes. Those things cost money. You got to license each one of those. Um, and there was there was dozens and dozens of things like that. If you want to use, for example, a panel from Stranger Things where they show the kids playing, or if you want to show uh, anything of that nature, something from Big Bang Theory, whatever, those things all you know have licensing fees associated. So anytime we saw something like that, if we thought it added value and showed helped connect the dots on the contemporary importance of the brand, we would do it. Um, so it was it was a very expensive project. It was very labor intensive, but um, we were so proud of it. By the time we were done, we were just we were just really thrilled about what that how that came out. It's a beautiful book. I, I mean, clearly, I love it. But so I'm, I, so when you finish the book, it's on shelves. You go in Barnes and Noble. There it is. And then, hey, let's do it again. Let's make another one of these things. Like how how quickly of a turnaround are we talking about here be between release and conceptualization of the next thing? Right. <laughs> right. Um, so hey, let's think about that for a second. So Art and Arcana came out in October of 2018. Lore and Legends, which we just finished, came out, uh, what, like a couple weeks ago in October of this year, 2023. So there it is, right? And same form factor. You'll notice it's 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 a sequel. It's an, it's a, it's an honest sequel to Art and Arcana, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, we finished that book, and it, it, we had all had a great time. 10 Speed was thrilled at Penguin Random House. They were thrilled with it. We were really happy with the whole experience. And so the first thing we we did is is Ten Speed came to us firstly about doing a D and D cookbook. That was the first thing that was on the docket. So um, the publisher at at Ten Speed, uh, one of the things that he's actually most known for, he also runs an imprint called Clarkson Potter. Clarkson Potter is known for Barefoot Contessa, one of the biggest cookbook series out there, right? So he came to us and said, "Hey, you're the D and D experts. We just had this great time doing this." I've always had a dream to do a D&D cookbook. You want to do it? We're like, yeah. So that's how we got involved in that. So we started, that was the first thing we worked on for the first couple of years after that. We probably started that in 2018, give or take. Yeah. And that came out in 2020, um, in, in October, I think of 2020. So, so during the pandemic. Um, and that was a great, really super fun project. You know, there was a lot to that. And, and my brother at the time was actually too busy with work to join that one. So that was actually just me, Kyle and John. But it was it was intended to be the same team. Yeah. So I think it was around 2020 where we were wrapping that project up. And and Aaron, again, is kind of like, well, what's next, guys? You know, and we're like, well, you know, and we had been talking about this uh, a bit prior to that, because um, as a team, one thing that had become really apparent to us, but there's two things with Art and Arcana, as you may recall, that book um it kind of peters out around 2016, 2017, right? Like we just barely get into fifth edition. We're like, look, we've arrived and it's great. So we cover like the 40 year history and then we're kind of like, and here we are and things are great now. But what's really wild is the difference between say like 2017 and then where we were around 2020, where the brand had even like doubled down a couple more times. It was at the, it was at the absolute height of its popularity. We couldn't believe, you know, how, um, how much of a mainstream name brand D and D had become by that time, even by the time we'd finished it. So we had had this idea for a while, actually, and we had even toyed around with this as a non-visual book. We thought like this would be good as like a traditional, like nonfiction, like word book. Yeah. Um, the idea that like, how did this happen? How did this 40 year old at the time, anyway, 40 year old brand uh, that was kind of on its last legs. Um, it was this arcane, almost like, ready for the nostalgia dustbin type of, of, of game that had really was really challenged after fourth edition. 
how did this become a star in the digital era? Like in 10 years, in 10 years time, how did this thing explode and become a household name everywhere? And even by 2020, 2021, we were having that, that conversation. It, there had been such a dramatic turnaround from, from 2012, the end of the, the fourth edition era. So, so we had had this idea, like, we think this is an unbelievable story. We think this is like just a great contemporary journalism story about this brand that was kind of this like really prototypical analog, you know, dusty tabletop game. It was like almost dead. And all of a sudden it's bigger than it's ever been. How, how did this happen? That was the story we wanted to tell. And um, when, obviously, because we were still talking to 10 speed about doing more books, they were like, well, Hey, what if we do like a contemporary, they, they were kind of very interested in doing a fifth edition art book. And we're like, you know what? We can do the same methodology we did for Art and Arcana and just apply it to the story we're so dying to tell about how this 40-year-old brand had turned itself completely around. And so that is where Lauren Legends was born. Um, and, and what we were able to do is basically pretend the last very short chapter of Art and Arcana was 416 pages long and had mm -hmm. 900 images. And so we really got to like blow out this whole contemporary story and use, again, the same methodology we did for Art and Arcana. Like, let's tell the story with images and 80,000 words or whatever. Um, and so the kind of that's that's how we went about it. But that's how it came about. And so Tenspeed loved the idea. We, you know, we signed on the dotted line and we kind of jumped into it. And we just, we pursued it the very same way. But as you may expect, it's a very different type of book, given that it's so contemporary. Along the path here, you know, as, you're, as you guys are putting this thing together, did you did you encounter any closed doors? Or did you encounter any people that were like, we don't want to talk about that? Or I don't, you don't, I don't want you to name names or anything like that. But you know, surprises were like, you know, oh, we do it. He he doesn't want to be affiliated with this or something like that. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the fact that it's contemporary, yeah. um, the the fact is people are a lot more careful. I think about what they say. Mm -hmm. so, you know, sometimes you're working with people that are again like currently designing the product or current artists or whatever. Um, no, I, again, I'm not suggesting that they were really like holding back whatever, but again, it, it, the stakes are a very different animal. Then when you're talking about a designer that worked for TSR in 1977, right? They're usually pretty forthright and honest about what was going on. And they'll, 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 they're happy to show you the skeletons and so forth. Um, so no, I, I would say there, there was certainly things that, um, I would say there were some obstacles in the project in, in regard to things like that. I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, doing this, this streaming thing that they don't want to talk to them. I mean, think of it this way. In some cases, maybe someone that, that does a, a show may not want to talk to you as much because they want to keep that for their own, their own podcast or their own show or whatever. You know, there, there are pieces like yeah. that, that I, I think become kind of competing priorities, but by and large, that makes it sound like there was all these closed doors. I would say, Generally, no. I mean, this is a community of people that love to share, yeah. that love to to talk to people and love to kind of, well, tell communal stories, right? Mm -hmm. And so ultimately with this, I, I mean, I think what was so exciting about it is we got like unrestricted access across to the board to the to the people at Wizards of the Coast and a lot of other people. I, again, what I think made this story really fun, and I think what makes it, I'd like to think beyond like, a, oh, a behind the scenes look at what Wizards of the Coast was doing the last 10 years. Like, that's interesting. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of the thing I, I think that that made this really fun was that they allowed us to tell the story outside the walls, too. So, you know, when we were trying to answer that original question we were talking about, how did this old brand that was 40 years old, that was almost like on on death's door, become this huge star and become way bigger than it ever was in a 10 year period in the most unusual way? And 
the answer was, well, there was a couple of things, right? There was this incredible play test they did, right? They call it D&D Next. But as you can see in like the, the preface, we kind of dig into that too. Everyone calls it D&D Next, but there was an Iowa test that that preceded that. Um, I, Iowa was, they called it that, I think, because um, it was kind of referential to um, um, Field of Dreams. If you build it, they will come. They called it Iowa. Um, and then after there was an alpha test, and then they went into this huge D&D Next play test that a lot of people know about, right? And that had 175,000 people. So they emerged from that with a really, really tight, uh, accessible set of rules, a really smart set of rules, I think, for the median D&D player. What goes along with that is they really double down on on art and visuals and and find a uniformity in their visuals that I think they had never really quite had before. They do a lot of things with lore, right? They, they go really heavy on story and lore, including bring back a lot of this long-term lore that old school players really know about more than anybody else. When you start talking about like Vecna and Aserac, like these were things that these were kind of a, um, you might say an outreach to uh, older players that had long since left the game to come back because we're, we're, we're rebooting a lot of this old lore that, that you know and love. So, okay. So these are all things that are happening in the side, the walls of wizards. Right. But I think what's amazing about this story, and I think how it, I mean, again, I think it's really unlikely how it came about, is nobody could have predicted, you know, so that's all 2014, the, the, the news rule set comes out, people love it, it's great, out of the gate, very popular, but no one could have predicted in 2015 that this group of voice actors decides, hey, we're going to we're gonna record our game and put it on, on, on you know, we're going to stream it. Um, and uh, this becomes critical role, right? Like no one could have guessed that in what February or March of 2015, this was going to happen. Uh, and they were going to play this new rule set that just happened to come out. And this is how they were going to launch their show. Well, I, I think a lot of people know, watching probably know what happened with Critical Role. And then a lot of other shows beyond that, um, Dimension 20, there's, I mean, there's a lot of examples now of how actual play just absolutely transformed the landscape of tabletop role playing. And, and again, we go into a lot of why in this book. Um, and I think, I think, I think a lot of it is, is probably more or less, um, I don't know, I don't know if it's obvious or not, but it demystifies the game. It, it solved a problem that the irony of the whole thing is it solved a problem that D and D had been trying to solve for 40 years. What was so fun for our team to approach this project was that we had just done a 40 year project about all the different things that Wizards, not Wizards, TSR at the time, and then Wizards later had tried to make this game work. And sometimes it worked really well. 80s, it had a high point, and then at low point, and the 90s, it had kind of a higher point, a lower point. They had tried all this different stuff. And you might, again, you might remember, there was panels in Art and Arcana where, like, we'll have spreads where we show all the different starter and basic sets they would roll out, like, in a three- or four-year period. They were trying, like, crazy to try to demystify this game, to try to lower the bar to entry for people that, that didn't understand it. And in those days, of course, your only options were to try to, like, make an easier plug-and-play game with an easier rule book, and maybe they would try miniatures or more of a board game type set. They tried all this different stuff. And, of course, what ended up cracking the code on D&D, I think, for really creating the, the, the biggest interest and, and, frankly, just eliminating the barriers to entry was just watching people play on a, on a stream. Now anyone can watch this and say, oh, this isn't weird math. This is just hanging out with your friends and telling a story. I do that. I can do that. It demystified every aspect of the game. And I, I think it sounds so simple, but it, it is such it's such a brilliant thing. And and by the way, you know, to, to give some major props to um, to uh, Penny Arcade and Acquisition Inc., 
Um, this was something that, and, and we, we covered this in the book as well. This was something that they had thought about in 2008. You know, the first episodes, the first podcasts of Acquisition Inc. happened in 2008 during the fourth edition. But again, it was a podcast. It didn't get a lot of, it, you know, it, it didn't get a lot of attention, except again, when it started, they started doing their live their live play things at Penny Arcade on stage. Like people would show up in droves, you know, Will Wheaton started doing it and, and Felicia Day and a lot of other people later. So this notion of like actual play was kind of out there, but 2015, you know, again, you got the right people in the right place at the right time. Um, Geek and Sundry, of course, broadcast this and Critical Role becomes this sensation. All of a sudden, this game that has been so mystified for so many years, those barriers to entry have been broken down and people can start following this. They can start understanding it easily and they can start playing. And again, I, I, I could I could obviously go all night on this, but just to give you like one other piece that again, you could never plan it this way. What happens in 2016, but there's this weird show on Netflix called Stranger Things that just happens to pop up. And it, guess what? Stranger Things is in love with D&D. What wouldn't you know it? So all of a sudden, again, you've got this convergence of all of these, not only creators that are now in Hollywood and a lot of other places and in technology, and they're talking about D&D like crazy. In fact, it's showing up in their work now, right? Whether it's Big Bang Theory or whether it's community or whether it's it's something like Stranger Things, you've got actual play happening. You've got this great rule set. You've got great art. You've got great lore. All of these things start like stacking on each other. All of a sudden, the momentum starts building and it kind of spins out of control. So that was the story we wanted to tell. And there's, of course, a lot of visual components you can tack onto that that are a lot that are, that are beyond just art. And so I think that's what makes it a fun and, and kind of dynamic uh, book and hopefully read. Isn't it crazy the way that everything lined up? Because I remember listening to Will Wheaton was an early adopter for, of podcasts. And I remember listening like way back, I guess it was probably around 2008, hearing him talking about you know, and Felicia Day was there too. I remember that time and it was, it had an audience, but then later it just got so much bigger. It's so crazy that it's like, we just weren't quite ready for it. It was, it was right. building, but it wasn't quite ready, ready to explode. One of the cool things about the book is that you've got quotes throughout and Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine. So he, he's got the, he wrote the forward to the book, but there's quotes all throughout it from people that we know. It seems as if, well, it seems because it is true. A lot of successful people have Dungeons and Dragons in their lives. It it's a key component. It's a, it's a component to uh, the lives of a lot of successful people. Do you want to talk about that for just a second? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think um, usually it's a really common thread when you ask somebody, especially in entertainment. That's where you see it come up a lot, right? I imagine there's a gazillion, you know, uh, people out there that, that, you know, have been successful that happen to grow up with D and D or whatever. And I think a lot of people, um, but especially in things like entertainment and technology, mm -hmm. I think a lot of those people in particular attribute a lot of their, their creativity and their storytelling. Um, you know, they kind of basically cut their teeth on imagination in D and D, uh, for whatever reason, again, it just so happened that D&D &D in the old days had an over, a lot of overlap with early technologists, early computer. Um, so again, these things tended to go hand in hand. But I think the easiest story around that and what you usually hear are people basically say, hey, I, I happen to grow up with D&D &D and it helped me think differently. It helped me uh, express myself in a completely different way. It helped me imagine in a way that uh, not, a lot of other people weren't necessarily doing. And, and in fact, of course, in the old days, um, D and D was a punchline. I mean, in the eighties, right. It was the prototypical thing you would do if you were a geek. Um, you didn't tell anyone you played D and D back then. Right. Um, yeah. for a lot of reasons, not only because it had the, the geek stigma, 
of course it had the satan worship stigma which was not not very helpful for the game either um so again i i think at this point you have a lot of these people that have been very successful and i think they look back on that and say those were the first stories I ever told that that was, that was the stuff that unlocked my imagination. And that's why I'm here today. And I think there's a really a disproportionate number of creatives that, that say that these days. So it's kind of, it's, it's very rewarding and, and fun to see how this game has been so influential. Yeah. You see it with Dungeons and Dragons and you see it with Star Trek. Those are two <laughs> Star Trek inspired a lot of people too. Um, did you, is the satanic panic stink of it gone? Is it, is it gone for good? Or is there still an element of that out there? You'd know more than I would. No, I would say not entirely. Um, okay. I, I think there's a, I, I think there's, there's certainly a lot of places that 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 has kind of carried over, and it exists. It it exists in a weird sort of way, like it's it it hangs over like a, a dark cloud over the game, but people don't even know why. Like in other okay. words, they'll say, "Oh, D and D, isn't that like a Aren't you not supposed to play that? Doesn't that?" Because keep in mind, it it wasn't. It wasn't just that it was; it had become associated and kind of gotten thrown in with the occult and, and is what what a lot of people now call the satanic panic. There was also all kinds of other rumors about the game because it was so mystified. Like you know, we talked about how the game's been demystified, um, like mind control and hypnotism and and uh, behavioral behavior change. Like it was associated with all of these different kind of theories, and they were all basically conspiracy theories against yeah. the game, effectively, right? All by people that didn't understand the game. There was one when I was a kid. One I remember is that this kid had committed suicide, I think because his character died. But I'm not actually. I'm. I don't even know if that's true. If it's just an urban legend at this point. It it, it was an urban legend. It it, okay. it was an it was another. I mean, and these these spread throughout the country. It, it, no matter where you were, this is what happened. To answer your question, Heath, though, even today, um, like I would say, so what still exists? That, that that's a good question. I mean, I couldn't say all of it. I, I'm sure there's a number. I'd be shocked if there wasn't still a number of communities that still hold on to like, oh, the, the occult nature of the game and so forth. I wouldn't be surprised. However, I what I would say is um, I know there are still laws in place, you know, so, so, so getting really objective about it. There are still laws in place in certain in certain places, in certain communities that I think were originally influenced by the stigma the game got. So here's an example. I heard a story the other day. I'd be lying if I said I was an expert in it, but not too long ago, uh, NPR had reported that like there's still a uh, a law in Wisconsin that prisons um, that prisoners are not allowed to play D and D because it promoted escapist fantasies and gambling uh, and oh. things like that. Right. So, but again, you can think about how something like that would have started, and I, I'm almost, I could almost assure you that. It, that was born out of this notion of this game is bad and people should not be playing D and D. So there's things like that, that still exist in weird corners that are basically just holdovers of old weird urban legends about the game. You know, what's crazy about that too, is that so much of Dungeons and Dragons is rooted in Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and churches use Lord of the Rings to draw illustrations to like faith and Christianity. They're so similar but it's like one is okay, and let alone that you know Tolkien was deeply Catholic and all this stuff. But like, we're still talking about wizards and dragons and all you know, all all this stuff and and orcs and uh, there's really no difference. But we it's, it's it it well, this is one of the reasons I could never really get on board with it, right? Because I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> and and when I was a kid, right, I was allowed to watch uh, like the, we had the line, the witch in the wardrobe. I'm like, sure, there's a witch sure. in the title of this book. Why why is this okay and this is not okay? So the, the hypocrisy and like 
it never made sense to me. So it's interesting to hear you elaborate a little bit more about it. Well, you know, I honestly, when I really like break down, I mean, again, when I, when I try to imagine exactly like how this went down, we know a lot about at this point, again, about how the, you know, again, we talked a lot, a lot about this in our Narcana, how the controversies really end up fueling the brand, right? It actually, it's, it's actually what is responsible largely for D and D's first, arrival on the scene of the mainstream is that when these controversies start to, to, to break down, you know, when, when James Dallas Egbert the third goes missing in 1979 at Michigan state, all of a sudden it becomes national news. And the rumor becomes that, Oh, he's a D and D player. I mean, it's, it's astounding how this stuff, it must've been like a weird game of telephone, but the rumor became, yeah. the rumor became that, Oh, well, James Dallas, he's a 16 year old college kid, computer science at Michigan state summer term, and oh, he plays a lot of D and D. He must have become his character. He must, because the human mind can, simply cannot yeah. handle, you know, pretend, pretending you're a character in a game. Uh, it broke down the the walls of of fantasy and reality to this poor kid, and he must have become his character. And he's probably lost in the steam tunnel, the labyrinthine steam tunnels beneath Michigan State University. How that? I mean, like that is a lot of levels of yeah. assumption here. Of course, and again, if you know the story, you know, J James Dallas Egbert III resurfaces. He had just run away. He ran away to Louisiana. He ran away because he had, a, he had a lot of issues he was struggling with. But that had become New York Times news. You know, that had become national news. And in the interstitial period, those, those, those several weeks where James Dallas Egbert III is missing, um, like the speculation grows wild and people love these stories, you know, weird occult game, you know, does this and it, it becomes known as this bizarre intellectual fantasy game. And I think the problem was that when these things started to, to happen, well, a couple of things are happening at the same time. At the time, TSR is, um, is negotiating a deal with Random House to actually distribute their books. So like almost literally at the same time, you start reading about this weird, bizarre, intellectual, occult, whatever you want to call it, game in the paper. And I mean, national papers now, San Francisco Chronicle, New York Times. Yeah. It's actually showing up on the, sh on the shelves of like Walden books. It's the first time it had ever actually made real mm -hmm. like trade distribution outside of hobby channels. So that's all happening at the same time. But I think what really became so... That's how it kind of grew to fame. I mean, again, like revenue quadruples that year. But the problem was it put this level of scrutiny on this game. So if you are familiar with what, especially like the, the original AD&D books, there's the Monster Manual, there's the Player's Handbook, and the, the Dungeon Master's Guide, 1979. Problem with those last two books in particular. So you were talking about Tolkien. It's a great example. Problem with those last two books is that Player's Handbook, 1978, has a huge demon idol on the front. And a bunch of people that are kind of like adventuring, you know, actually that it's one of the greatest covers of any book of all time for many, Absolutely. many reasons. I could talk about it all day It's by, by, by Dave Trampier, but it's got a big demon idol on front. Okay. Yeah. And then 1979, the dungeon master's guide has got a giant, Ifrit demon, you know, holding, holding this girl and fighting these adventures. Well, here's the problem I think is that, so these worried parents start going into these rooms and are reading the newspaper and they say, I think my kid plays that. And they start wandering into their kid's room. They look at these books and the books have demons on the front. Like, oh, no. like, I really think this is how this kind of snowballed is that these parents were like, kind of got worried. They had a reason to put some scrutiny on the game. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, it's true. Look at these books. They're like, they're so occult. And then they would open them up. Um, as, as my, my, uh, my buddy, David Ewalt used to talk about who, who wrote a, a really wonderful book in 2013 called of dice and men. Uh, you know, like you, you would open up these books and there were spells inside. 
Like, I knew it. They're spell books. These are occult books, and they have demons on the front, and they have spells inside. Like, it was pretty, it was weirdly easy to see how yeah. how the, the speculation could really grow out of control, especially with a game that no one understood. It was such a strange game to explain to anybody. So then you would ask your kid, well, do you play this game? Well, yeah, I play this game. Well, what's it like? What's like real life? It's like real life. Like, <laughs> like right? You could see like how that you could, again. So thank goodness. My for teenager has become withdrawn. They're in their room all the time. They've become kind of angsty. It's the game. It's the game. It must be the game. <laughs> so, I mean, again, it, and it, so it, it became such a, you know, it became the enemy of obviously like, you know, the, it became the enemy of a lot of different groups. It wasn't just like censor groups. It wasn't just religious groups. It, it was like everyone's enemy. But of course, like I mentioned earlier, when you're everyone's enemy and your parents say you can't play this game, you're going to play this game. Yeah. yeah. It's like, <laughs> That's what made it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't buy the new Iron Maiden album. And then of course, what do you want to do? You want to go buy. Yeah. 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 Um, one of the things we're going to wind down here because you've been really generous with your time. But one of the things I want to ask you about before we talk about your, your next book, um, has your relationship, you, you were working with Dungeons and Dragons for a long time now. When did you start? When did you start writing the Gary Gygax biography? Mm. So I, um, I started that book as a, a master's thesis project. So I was at the University of Chicago in a continuing education program. It was it was like a, a liberal arts master's program, and um, finish to finish that program, you had to write a special project. And so I don't know how I tripped on this idea exactly, but I got this crazy idea. Again, it was around 2012 that I was gonna um, I was gonna do a biographical project about Gary Gygax, and actually the reason was that like you, I grew up in an era where this game was highly stigmatized and uh, and dangerous. Mm -hmm. our, our our me and Sam's mother, our mother threw away all of our books when when she got word that this was actually dangerous and demonic and all that. The books were gone. We had to rebuy those books and we did. But um so so I, I grew up in that era and and I'm from Chicago. So Lake Geneva, where this all went down, where, you know, where the game was really, that's where TSR was based. That's where D&D &D was, was created and so forth. Uh, that's like right up the road from Chicago, about 80 miles north. It's, it's close, hour and a half. And so I was very aware of this person, Gary Gygax. He was on the front of all the books. He was this really shadowy figure, especially if you were from that era and where I was from. Like he was this regional figure, but he was kind of this legend, but he was also this shadowy figure that no one could seem to figure out. And again, he was, you know, for me as a kid, at least associated with this, like this dangerous game that everyone was talking about. Right. So I've always been curious about him. So in 2012, for whatever reason, I got a hankering to learn a lot more about Gary Gygax. I really wanted to learn who this guy was, what he did. And even by that time, it had become really apparent to me that what he did was super important. I, I looked at my own life and said, wow, my experience with D&D has been so formative to me for my imagination, for who I am. And, and then I started to realize there was a lot of people that had the same sentiment. Even by then, there was a lot of television shows like Big Bang Theory and others that had like been putting D&D &D out there a lot, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if you, if you knew where to look, you would see there was a lot of big time creatives that were very much on the up and up or, or that had already arrived that had said, this game's super important. Um, everyone from, you know, John Carmack and John Romero who had made Doom and said they were inspired by their game of D, like all of this stuff, right? So um, I got this idea that I was gonna do a biographical project about Gary Gygax to finish the program. And the reason I thought I could do it was that um, 
that I, I would, I, I was enough in the community to know that like people like, like Tim Cast, the original editor of Dragon Magazine and people like James Ward, these were people that were on the front of old D&D books that I had. And they were like around, you could go to a convention, and just see them, hang out with them and talk to them. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I realized that even little old me, that there was, it, it didn't have the normal barriers to do a biography about somebody really like big and important. Like you would, like Steve Jobs, like I could never get the access to the people I would need. But here, like they were all here and around. So Gary died in 2008. Um, but again, I, I realized I could put together this project. So I did it as a master's project. It wasn't a biography per se. It was a biographical project. And by the time I was done with it, it was like 60,000 words. It was, it, was, it was lengthy. It wasn't full book length, but it was getting kind of close. And by the time I was there, I was like, oh my gosh, I, I guess I should. And this is like 2013, somewhere in there. I'm like, I guess I... Uh, I guess end of 2013, maybe even getting close to 2014, I should finish this. And so I actually went through the agent process to try to get a literary agent, which is a whole thing in and of itself. Went through that whole thing, got a wonderful agent named Jacques de Spoulbert, who was a fascinating long-term uh, editor and and uh, and literary agent. And he took on the book and, um, and sold it to Bloomsbury. And so like, that's how that first book came about, but it wasn't even intended to be a book originally. It was a, mm -hmm. it was a project that became a book. Um, and so the, the rest was kind of history. And that, that's really what got me um, from a writing standpoint in, into D and D. Sidebar. Did you go on rebel force radio to talk about that book when it was I, new? I did. I did. I, um, I, yeah. I forgot. I just, I was like, he was on Rebel Force Radio. It was like a decade ago, right? It was a, it was a long time ago. It was Whatever. a long time ago. It was a long time ago yeah. because because Jimmy is based in Chicago, and yeah. um, and my brother had known him from you know from all the Star Wars work they had done. So right. so I think we had gotten connected at some point there. But yeah, I probably talked about it ten years ago, literally. Yeah, or I almost. That. Well, this is going to be the big Oprah question now. So, having worked on it for over a decade, has your relationship with Dungeons and Dragons changed because of all that you've done within it? You know, telling the story. Do you still relate to it the same? um on some level yes i i enjoy i enjoy playing dungeons and dragons first of all um as much as i ever have and i'll, I'll tell you i play all the editions in, in different campaigns and in different ways and so again I, i'm like in an old school moldvay basic um uh game i've got a fifth edition game um i'm not playing any fourth or third edition right now not not important other than to say i still enjoy the game yeah. uh so i still love the game and playing it none of that has changed or ever will, I think, right? Because playing the game is what it is. It's not about anything other than sitting there with your friends and and like sharing a, a good time, right? And telling a story together and making each other laugh and doing all the things that happen in, in a game of D&D. &D. So that's exactly the same. I think outside of that, though, when I step outside of those walls, yes, I would say things are, are very different um, mm -hmm. than they were when I first started writing about it, you know, almost, well, I guess 10 years ago. Um, firstly, I know so much more about the history, again, Every time you do one of these books, you learn uh, an, an entirely new subset of information. It started with me, with Gary Gygax, and a lot of the basics of how the game came about. Um, then you get into the art. So, you know, again, like Art and Arcana, you learn everything there is to know about the art of the game. You, you learn everything there is to know about the visuals and the advertising. That took us down all kinds of different rabbit holes. And believe it or not, by the time we do Heroes Feast... We Who had ever had, like, the hankering to figure out every meal one would ever eat in D&D? Like, we've never had the cause to scour 40 years of D&D history to see, well, what do you eat in all these modules? And, like, uh, how does this work? And truthfully, there, 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 there was a lot of information, but kind of less than you would think. Yeah. And so then we became experts in D&D food and, and even, like, what elves eat and how they source food and how they feel about food, right? Um, and so all of these projects bring you down a different 
path. Same with lore and legends. Same with the Drids book that I worked on earlier this year, uh, the, the the Legend of Drids Visual Dictionary. Hold um, on, say 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 the name again. Oh, uh, th that is the I've got a copy here somewhere. The Legend here it is. Got all my books kind of handy here. Okay, so that's this guy right here, the Legend of Drids Visual Dictionary uh, by DK. It's one of these like classic DK Visual Dictionaries. Mm -hmm. It's the first one D and D ever did. Um, Again, they they bring you to completely different. And then this one was this one's all about all about lore. Now, I happen to know the Dritz series really well, so you know again it was it was a spectacular project to do. But I will tell you that there is so much Forgotten Realms lore that like I had to really really dig deep on because again Dritz covers a lot of ground by itself. But the fact that we were trying to make kind of a, an FR source book, um, so again then I get really deep down that path. So all these books kind of bring you to a different place. So at this point, I feel like I know, um, I'll say this, I know the brand really well, but if anything, after all this time, I feel like I, I have a better sense of what I don't know. Cause there's so much, you could never know it all. You could never know it all. Well, see, that's what I was going to, I wasn't going to go there, but it feels to me as if you are one of the most knowledgeable dungeons and dragons, uh, you know, more than, probably you're going to be in the one percent i mean we might even put you in the top 10 right because you have seen people have pieces of it but you've put the pieces together and your co-writers you've put these pieces together but you've seen the documents that you know not everybody else has seen so i just wonder like you've got to be one of the most knowledgeable dungeons and dragons chroniclers walking the face of this earth and i just wonder what that does to your joy of dungeons and dragons well so firstly it's really nice of you to say i, I don't think i would put myself in the i, I don't i don't think i'd rate myself anywhere in any i'll say this there's certain little pieces of DD knowledge that i'm i i think i know a lot about I, i'm probably you know pretty pretty strong but I, again the the more I've, I've dug into it the more i see that like there's an infinite amount to know. And and like, again, you think about the people that were there, like doing the work at the time. Well, they, I mean, they, they did it, you know, like they, they know so much. I, again, I, I, I'm really proud of the work I've been able to do on the Chronicle side. Right. I think I've been able to tell the story pretty well, but even there, there's a lot of people that like kind of understand it a lot better than I do. Um, so again, it's, it's very humbling. I mean, it, it really is after all this time, what I would say is it's really humbling to you to dig into this. And, and again, I, I love this work. I mean, I, I, I would do this work for free. Um, Sometimes I do. And, um, you know, ultimately, like what you see is that I, I get to tell the story of really, really creative, amazing people, whether they're artists, whether they're designers, whether they were they're, they're novelists, whatever. But that's kind of the joy that I take in it is I get to really shine a light on people that deserve a lot of credit. And one thing that was unique about this story, because it was such a homebrew strange story I mean, the, the story of D&D is, as you know, Heath, it's stranger than fiction. You couldn't make up how this all really went about. But it was it was one of the things that I, I've really taken the most joy in is like shining a light on people that really never got got any any light at all, especially in the really early days that they happened to be like I talked about, like 14 year old Tracy Lesh, who did a lot of these really like really early, very important illustrations. And, you know, he went out to become a, a very well-known, you know, strong illustrator doing a lot of different stuff. But he never got like his D&D &D credit until, you know, um, in, until more recently when, when we've been able to help shine some light on some of these things. So that I, I really like that. I really like being able to give credit to a lot of people that really had an important part of this game. Everyone talks about Gary. They talk about Dave. Um, but there's a lot of other people in that ecosystem that deserve a, a ton of credit. Well, so before we transition from D and D to B and B, is there more story that could be, I mean, it sounds like you said there's an infinite amount of stories that you could sell. 
is there possibility for another volume in our collection for what you, we got art and arcana we got lauren ledges that's to be something else maybe in the future yeah no, i don't see why not i mean when i think about the amount of um you, you know it's you know it's wild like so I think about the archive we have uh, available to us that we had either scanned or that we had actually gotten the originals of or whatever. Mm -hmm. Even with something like Art and Arcana, we could have done another supplement of the same length of nothing but interiors from that period. I mean, like, wow. like we, we don't even cover interiors very much. Like there's all of these incredible pen ink interiors in all kinds of different stuff. Some are super iconic. Um, so, so firstly, like we could do supplements of just that series between Lauren Legends, Art and Arcana and everything that goes along with it. Um, almost like, you know, I mean, many, many volumes, let's put it that way. Could you though? Is that something that's actually a possibility? Is that something that could, that could actually happen? I, I think so. I think so. I, you know, we've certainly had talks about how we could expand okay. some of these works for sure. Um, okay. so I think that's kind of out there. I will tell you that, um, I don't know if you, you've heard about this yet and I, and I don't remember if we've, we've sent it to you. Uh, we make sure I, I will, I promise I will. Um, Heroes Feast, the, the cookbooks, they, 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 we've got another one coming out in November. So they've already decided to make a series of that. So we've got a second Heroes Feast cookbook coming out in November. They're also making a show of it this fall. They're actually, there's actually like a, so um, you may have heard of this, but D&D &D is releasing a, uh, a fast streaming channel. That's all D&D &D content. And so there's like live play. There's, there's a bunch of different shows they're doing. One of the shows is called Heroes Feast and it's an unscripted cooking show uh, that's based on our, our book Heroes Feast with, but, wow. but with real professional chefs that know what they're doing. And then we get to come and talk about the lore. So there's a whole thing going around that. So, so that is clearly going to, to new levels, but in terms of just the art and the story, there's suffice it to say, there's a lot of stories that are still untold uh, and deserve to be told. And there's a, God knows there's a lot of art and illustration I mean, we could fill almost rooms with that stuff. So I'm hopeful that there will be like, there'll be more of that. I, I think that right. could be really exciting over the, the coming years. That would be wonderful because I love, I mean, I absolutely love this. This, this is, it fills me with joy and the idea of exploring where the, the scholarship. I, I use the word scholarship that probably puts people off. Let me rephrase that. The in-depth account of this stuff that we love is so fascinating to me. And the story is so clearly told and visually told that it is like this is essential this book should cost these both of these books should cost 500 dollars each you know <laughs> they should cost a, because of what they give you because there's like you can't right but that's what it should cost because it's this it's, it's it's uncle scrooge's money bin filled with facts and it, like it's just this endless dive into this wonderful stuff so anyway i mean it's listen i'm just i'm just telling you it's, it's high praise but it's how i feel well oh, thank you no, i mean yeah it's it, i'm delighted to hear i, I have to say i'm really we are really proud of of both these books we've been talking about art and arcana lore and legends again it's a natural sequel we got to again tell a completely different story i think just as good a story a really interesting unlikely story everything from actual play to stranger things to art to design to game testing um and and by the way one thing that was really fun about it, i should mention is that because again we had just come off this like 40 year history thing so how cool is it that dnd spent the last 10 years resurrecting people like Xanathar and Morden Kanan and Volo. Like we were like, we were just studying those guys. So yeah. the idea, Tasha. So the idea that, 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 um, that was one area that we felt was really important for us to live as D and D historians or whatever you want to call us. 
we thought one of our charges was we have to uh, provide the, the, the context around these things. We thought it was valuable to say, let's give people a blurb on where TMAT came from and what, what TMAT is all about. What, I love that. Where Page she came 75, from. by the way, it's in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Where did TMAT come from? Where did Volo first show up? Who's this Van Richten that's on the front of this new book? Uh, who's Tasha? Like these have all super old, in some cases, really esoteric, like hard to find history. So we thought one of our charges was our job is to to do that work. We've got to make sure that that that's a level of research and depth that, that we can provide here that adds some real value to this story mm-hmm. outside of curating art and doing a hundred other things. So again, I, I'm, I'm thrilled that, that you like it. And uh, I know I'm, I'm really proud of it. So again, thank you for, for all the, the praise. It's, it's really appreciated. I love it. And I wouldn't fake it. I wouldn't tell you, I wasn't like, Oh, it's great. Like I don't do that. It's an, and, and people can tell because they trust me. I've built that rapport with my audience. I've built that trust. They know if I'm really excited about something, there's a reason for it. And I, listen, there's a lot of, I got dungeon masters that watch my channel and stuff. I mean, there's people that are really going to connect with us. So let's talk about your novel. Cause you have now written a novel. It's not about dungeons and dragons, but it is about it's, it's got it's the, the role-playing element. You want to just tell people a little bit about maybe how the, the who, what, when, where, and why of Vivian Van Tassel and the secret of midnight Lake. Absolutely. Heath. And, and thanks for asking again. This, this is, this is a, uh, this was a hugely exciting project for me. So firstly, it's my first published novel, right? So I've written a long time. Everything that I've written is, is technically nonfiction. Although that's weird when you think about it. Cause like a book, like, like we were just looking at this guy right here, right? Yeah. This is a nonfiction reference book about a completely fictional world and topic, right? Like, right. so, but so again, suffice it to say, I, I, I love fiction, right? I love imagining storytelling and so forth. So, I've got all these nonfiction books out there, different styles. Um, so this is my first published novel. And uh, as you said, it's called Vivian Van Tassel and the Secret of Midnight Lake. And so I, I will tell you, um, you won't be surprised to hear this is hugely inspired by role-playing games, right? And and in fact, to be really specific, um, so this book is like, so when they say middle grade fiction, you know, so think of this as like Percy Jackson, Harry Potter, Fablehaven, you know, take your pick of, of whatever. Um, and the, the way this book came about, so this was kind of like, I wanted to write a book that got my own kids interested in role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games. And this book, I think, does that relatively well. I'd like to believe it does that very well. But it was inspired heavily by my first book about Gary Gygax. So the way this came about is um, when I was writing Empire of Imagination, or in fact, when I was actually working on that special project before it became Empire of Imagination, um, there was a super interesting detail about Gary Gygax's childhood that I couldn't get out of my head. Um, so this is during the research process. Uh, what Gary used to talk about when he was a kid in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, is that he used to wander around the the abandoned ruins of Oakwood Sanitarium. And Oakwood Sanitarium is, so in the town of Lake Geneva, when you drive into town, you kind of drive down into this kind of bowl um, and then you're kind of at lake level and, and it's this really, Lake Geneva is this really interesting town for anyone that's never been there. And I imagine most people haven't, um, they used to call it the Newport of the West because it's this super Tony town. It's 80 miles North of Chicago, but, um, it's basically an otherwise very beautiful Wisconsin fishing like town, except that it has this weird insurgence of extraordinary wealth because basically f- families like the Schwinn family and the Wrigley family, um, uh, families like that all had like these mansions around the lake. So this was basically these, they're, they're summer homes, right? So really an unusual town. So when you drive into Lake Geneva, you drive down like uh, on this hill. And in the old days, it, it was built in 1885 to be exact, there was this Oakwood sanitarium that, that literally perched above the town. 
right? And it's this four-story Romanesque building. Like you, you couldn't make this thing up, like the way it looked, especially when it was abandoned when Gary was a kid. So the thing you did when you were 13 and you were like a troublemaker is that you would go and you'd wander around the abandoned ruins, even though it was all fenced off and so forth. That was what you did, right? And so Gary used to talk about that as a big inspiration for him, uh, you know, about dungeon play and all that, that, that type of thing. He said the Oak, you know, Oakwood was a really inspiring thing to him. So anyway, long story short, when I started looking into this, I found old archival pictures of Oakwood. And again, it was, it was like, you again, it was, you couldn't believe like this thing like perched over the town and it was real. But the other thing that I found is that when I was digging into this, I kept landing on all these different sanitariums in Lake Geneva. Like there was like a half dozen sanitariums. Like, I'm like, the town has like full time 8,000 people. Like, why are there a half? Why are there so many sanitariums in little Lake Geneva, Wisconsin? So that got me onto an idea that I kept in the back of my mind that rolled around in my head for five years. So I, you know, I finished Empire of Imagination, did all that. But this, it, it, it sparked this what if idea. And so I thought it was so interesting that the town where D&D was born also had tons of sanitariums. So I came up with the what if of, well, what if, as for, for a fictional idea, if there were so many sanitariums because people kept getting committed for, say, delusions, and the delusions that people kept having were like, oh, they would go in the woods and see a bear with the face of an owl. Or they would go into the woods and they would see a floating eyeball with 10 eye stalks on the top or something like that, right? That was where the idea started is that like, this is why there's so many sanitariums around the town. And so maybe when Gary creates D&D, &D, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it based on things of his imagination. He does it based on things he is seeing and experiencing. That, that, that was the idea. That was the original thrust of it. So, so come to 2019, when I first started writing this book, I finally had a second to outline it and figure out like what I wanted it to do. Um, so again, uh, not, not to, to give away the plot or anything like that, but so Midnight Lake is, is an analog for like Geneva, the game Beasts and Battlements, no surprise. <laughs> it's kind of an analog for D&D. &D. Garrison Arnold is might be based on various creators of D&D. &D. Um, and so uh, the idea, of course, is that this girl moves to this new town. Uh, and comes to realize that everything is not as it seems. And her 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 elementary school is, or her middle school rather, is in a former sanitarium. Uh, and she comes to kind of find some old case files and realize there's some strange coincidences between what's in those and this game of beasts and battlements that she's playing that was invented right there in town. So again, those that know the story of Gary and D&D &D will look at this and say, wow. But of course, it's for eight to twelve-year-olds. So really, yeah. what this 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 book is for is that anyone out there that has kids that they want to get interested in tabletop role-playing, there's a lot of good tabletop role-playing stuff in there. You know, the kids play the game and they're interested. So uh, that's kind of who it's for. But it was it was super fun to write, and it was it was a big passion project. It was this idea that hit me like a lightning bolt in 2013, 2014 when I was working on Empire of Imagination. Oh, well, it's got a built-in franchise quality about it too. You know, like you could keep that going well and and it is intended to be a series i'm actually working on the second one as we speak so very good um it's intended to at least be a trilogy and again i just had a, a huge amount of fun with it and it just it just meant a lot to me for what it's worth um my daughter's my oldest daughter is vivian um and so um it, it, her name is vivian that is to say it's spelled differently we use the french spelling uh but um so again uh, a lot of the characters were inspired by people that are they're close to me and it's, it was just a really fun project to do what do your kids think about the book they love it. I think they say they think they have to say that though. I mean they they love it, but I think they have to say that. It's so it's great. This is really great. <laughs> I know. Oh man. Oh no, wow. This is so good. <laughs> oh, you used my name, but you spelled it different. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's super cool, man. That is really, really great. And I'm do you like 
okay, having come out of so much research and uh, the, you know, quote, nonfiction, right? Um, do you, I know you're working on a second one. Like, do you enjoy one of those more than the other? There, um, I'll say this. One thing I've, I've, I've come to appreciate and, and really learn about writing over time is that writing is writing. Writing actually, from a process standpoint, feels the same. Even the creative process feels really close to me, uh, way closer than I think most people would describe these things. Like, for example, when you're writing nonfiction, you know, people assume like, oh, nonfiction, you already know the story. You already know the characters, the real characters. It's our world. You're not making, you're not doing any world building. But, but you know, when you write nonfiction, you always have, get, there's always things you don't know that you want to know about your subject. So consider you have to, you're, you're still storytelling, right? Whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you're still storytelling. You're still solving narrative problems, Again, like if, if you know fact A and fact C, but you don't know B, you have to solve how you get from A to C. Like, so you have to solve narrative problems in either case. And I would also argue you have to still have to do a lot of research. I mean, Vivian Van Tassel is is pretty unique because it's so based on research and then it's, it's kind of, you know, it's veiled and it's, it's changed and so forth. Um, but you always have to do a lot of research. If you're going to write fiction that feels real, that, that, that resonates with people, you're going to do research. I promise you're going to, you're going to crack books and you're going to, you're going to do internet research. So the, the, believe it or not, the, the process actually feels very, very close to me. Um, I'm not sure if I have a preference. I, my juices get flowing in very different ways, um, between the, the two different things. You know, when I, start getting down a thread and I start making connections on nonfiction, I get super excited. In other words, when I start researching something and then coming to a realization like, oh, wait, they did this here and they did this here. And they, oh, there's a pattern here. Or there was some unknown pattern that I didn't see before. Again, you said earlier, this means something. You have a lot of this means something moments when you actually look at the history of something holistically. And, and maybe you have the opportunity, for example, to study it for a visual history. All of a sudden, you see things you just never saw before. You never had a reason to see before. Um, same with 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 the the novel process, though. When you're writing fiction, um, again, I just love the idea that that you have to come up with ideas to solve those problems, right? Like these these characters and these stories kind of take a life of their own. But the fact that you get to make up the idea, but it has to be a viable idea. It has to be. It has to be like good enough to exist. Um, I think that is a, a really exciting prospect. Um, but it's very different. It's very different than obviously trying to go like dig under rocks and, and figure it out. So, um, I would say I kind of like them both the same. They're just they're they're different, but they're also very similar. Weirdly enough. Yeah. Do you ever want to write a Dungeons and Dragons novel? Do you want to like move over Ra Salvatore? It's my turn. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm definitely no R.A. Salvatore, but I, I, I would I would write a D&D novel in a second. I mean, I think there's um, I mean, and I don't know if I think of them as any different as, as any other really well-built fantasy novel in a, in a spectacularly like built world, especially like the, the novel set in the Forgotten Realms. Well, I mean, a lot of them. And again, there's a lot of different yeah. D&D novels in different worlds. Um, but, you know, again, sticking with the Forgotten Realms for a second. Um, I mean, I would I would write something there in a millisecond. I, I know the realms really well there's a gazillion places to explore. It's enormous. Um, I'd love to do that. It, it would be a, a dream come true. So maybe someday, you know, I'll, I'll actually talk to my friends over there and say, Hey, can we, can we do some, I have to come up with a good idea first, probably. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll come to you when you stop, like when you have a second to think about it, it'll come to, cause it's, that's how that's, I can tell that's how your brain works is you're working on the stuff and in the background, it's just like, what if, you know, so that's great. When you do, you got to come back and talk to me about it. Listen, You've been so generous with your time. I'm going to let you go. But actually, I'm going to say goodbye to you after we finish the recording. But thank you so much for coming uh, onto the channel to talk to me about this. Well, I want to recommend everybody to buy both of the, buy the art 
everything we've talked about, Art and Arcana by Lauren Legend, by the Heroes Feast books. Get that legend of, I, I always struggle to say it. it's a legend of Drizzt. Drizzt, you gotta hit the Z. Drizzt. We we all struggle with that word. Yes, Drizzt, yeah. Drizzt. We don't know. Drizzt <laughs> is how I say it because that's how Ari Salvatore says it. I want people to know that I'm gonna put the links of all that stuff every everywhere in uh, all the books in the description of this uh, episode. Tell people where to keep up with you. Where do you want them to come find you? Oh, thank you. Um, sure. So. Again, uh, I'm, I'm happy to say most of my books, you can kind of find where, what's the expression? They say where, where better books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're, they're at bookstores. You can find them at bookstores. Um, you know, I, again, um, some game stores as well, um, probably fewer than, than, than I kind of wish. Um, for whatever reason, game stores kind of have a different channel, but regular bookstores, whether it's your your local bookshop or whether it's Barnes and Noble or whatever, you can find most of my books or certainly Amazon and online. Um, you can find me at my website, Empire of Imagination dot com uh it's based after my first book but it's got all my books and all my information there and then of course you can find me at places like twitter at mike whitwer uh on twitter uh instagram unearthed arcanist um so i've got i've got some uh, some stuff out there so you can find me in a lot of different places great that's that's great mike thank you so much this was an absolute pleasure thank you heath really really glad to be here I hope you come away from this interview with as much joy as I do. I could listen to this man talk about the stuff that he loves endlessly. He has so much passion, so much joy, so much enthusiasm. And a lot of that comes through in these books too. These books are a celebration. They are a visual celebration of Dungeons and Dragons. And I would also say that his book, Vivian Van Tassel and the Secret of Midnight Lake is also a celebration of not necessarily Dungeons and Dragons, but what he's gotten from Dungeons and Dragons. You know, we talked in the interview about how Highly successful people seem to have D&D in their, in their history. It's something that's a part of their lives. I'm going to include Michael Whitmer in that too because it's a part of his life, right? Look at Kyle Newman, his co-authors for the books, right? For Lore and Legends and for Art and Arcana. Uh, Kyle Newman, you know, John Peterson, like you, Sam Woodward, you write these books, you have D&D in your past. It, it encourages imagination. It encourages going an extra mile. It encourages, I don't know, like endurance and stamina and really like reaching to achieve something. I think it's great. And uh, this was an absolute joy. I think, you know, you never know. When you interview somebody, you never know. Some people come on, they have no energy whatsoever. Some people, they come on, and the minute you hit record, the minute they, they show up, you're like, this is going to be a blast. That's how I felt about this one. This was one of the most effortless interviews I've ever conducted. I think that comes through. Support this man. Support his books. Support his endeavors. Uh, I'm going to put links. You heard the links. I'm going to put them in the description of this episode. Go engage with him, engage with him on Twitter, engage with him in the places where he's at and let him know that you heard this, that you appreciated it. And that's, uh, yeah, we, like, we, we got to encourage our own, right? One of us, one of us. We encourage our own, you know, for people from the community. Um, I, just, I have so much, so much gratitude for Michael for this interview. Uh, so again, support the man and support Serial at Midnight. You can support Serial at Midnight by subscribing, by leaving reviews, by thumbs ups on YouTube, subscribing on YouTube, thumbs ups, leaving comments. Anything you can do to engage does support this podcast. Uh, it helps us to get noticed. Listen, every celebrity under the sun has at least one podcast now. It started during the pandemic. I listen to a lot of them too. I've started on the Scrubs podcast because I love Scrubs. I'm like, I had finished something and I'm like, all right, I'm going to start the Scrubs podcast now. I, I know. I We support all this stuff, right? But support Serial at Midnight by engaging with it helps, us, helps me to get noticed. There's YouTube memberships. There's Patreon in exchange. There's you know lots and lots of exclusive videos. 
uh, do some Q and A's and things like that. So, um, you know, I would really appreciate whatever you can do, even if it's just subscribing. That's the minimum of what you can do is you can subscribe. It's one click of a button and it helps me so much more than I could ever convey to you. Uh, gratitude to you. Gratitude to Michael Whitworth. Pick up his books. I appreciate you guys. Take care. Till next time, I will catch you later.